Psalm 131 is where we're going to be in God's Word today as we continue in this series, Anxious for Nothing, How the Gospel Frees Us from Worry. This is, as about half of the Psalms are, a Psalm of King David. And uh, we don't know the exact circumstances of this Psalm, but we do know that it falls in the midst of what are known as the, the Psalms of Ascent or the Psalms of, of Degrees. Beginning in Psalm 120, we find 15 of these, and we believe that they were most often used uh, for the people to sing and to meditate upon as they were going up to the temple to worship. Now, I don't know exactly what you and, and your family uh, might have been doing on the way to church this morning, but I know that for many families, uh, that can be a stressful time. Sunday morning is just one of those days, isn't it, when uh, everything can go wrong and nothing seems to want to work right. I, I determined a long time ago, uh, I never need to try to print anything on Sunday morning. I did brave that today, and it did work for me, but I have found, for some reason, the printers at our church will work all week long, but then Sunday morning, they will decide they need an update that's going to take a half hour, and I don't have time to wait on it. But these psalms, beginning in Psalm 120 and going up through Psalm 134, these psalms of ascent were, were written for God's people to sing on their way to church, so to speak preparing their hearts for worship before they ever entered into the building. As they were going to the place where they were going to meet with God, they were already preparing their hearts for that encounter with the living God. And so you can look back over these in your own time, beginning in Psalm 120. You can see the kinds of things that the psalmists were encouraging God's people to consider as they were preparing to go to meet with God. Psalm 31 is one of the more brief psalms, just three short verses, and we're going to spend our time there today as we talk about the calm for the anxious. Again, we live in an anxious world, a culture that is just rife with worry and and discontent. And as we consider what the Word of God would have to say to us once again today, we see here healing balm. There is a calm, a peace, a a quietness even that comes over the people of God, not after the storms of life have taken place, but right in the very midst of the storms, there is a peace that we have from him. And yet we continue, so many of us, to struggle with anxiety. We know we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace that passes all of our understanding, and yet we continue to be an anxious people. We know time and again the Bible says, do not worry. God is sovereign and in control of all things, and yet we continue to have these anxieties. And so the Bible speaks to us in the midst of our anxiousness. Our key truth this morning is this, that those who would see their anxieties calmed if you're anxious this morning for anything the bible would give you these encouragements today some things that we need to consider as i've said so many times we first have to think rightly church be reminded of this we first have to think rightly before we can act rightly 
We have to come to some gospel-centered realizations before we can see these things worked out into our lives. And so once again, the Bible this morning will remind us of some things we need to be reminded of. So first off, those who would see their anxieties calmed should consider, first of all, the pride in our worrying. Now, from the very first message in this series, Matt laid before us that one of the the main foundations of our anxiety is this desire to be in control. We want to control that which we cannot control. And so we worry. We worry about those things that are outside of our control and we worry in such a way that we seek to control that which is uncontrollable. It's a power and control issue. That's at the very heart of worry. But we also see here in Psalm 131 that that worry is not only a power and control issue, worry is ultimately a pride issue. It's a pride issue because our focus is on the wrong sorts of of things. And so David here in this prayer says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Church, the reason why we're worried oftentimes is because we are doing the very opposite of the kinds of things that David lays before us here in Psalm 131. There's a pride in our worrying, first of all, because our hearts are not inherently humble. We are not born as a humble people. We are born as a radically prideful people. Our eyes are raised too high. We do tend to set our sights on things that are beyond us. We are not content, for the most part, with our station in life. We even live in a culture, as you walk into classrooms today, you will see again and again signs that say things like, shoot for the stars, aim high, reach beyond your potential. And there's some encouragements there that we need to be very careful of. Because God has given each one of us a station, a position in life in which we are meant to be content. Now, I'm not saying to you this morning that that we don't chase our dreams, that we don't seek to live out our our fullest potential. But I am saying to us that there is a very godly and biblical and holy attribute known as contentment. And contentment is recognizing that God has placed me where I am according to his sovereign purposes and that he knows better than I know. He sees more than I see. He understands more than I will ever understand. And so while I may strive for more, there needs to be in the very center of my soul a sense of peace and contentment. But again, our hearts are not inherently humble. So we need admonitions like James 4.10, which says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's been said, we will either humble ourselves or we will be humbled. Those are really the two choices that are set before us as human beings. We will either humble ourselves or we will be humbled. And for many of us, we unfortunately choose time and again path number two. 
We have to be humbled by our sufferings. We have to be humbled by our lack. We have to be humbled by the things that don't work out exactly as we thought that they would or as we thought we maybe even deserved. We have to be humbled, but it is the good work of God to humble us and remind us of who we are in relation to him and in relation to one another. There's a pride in our worrying, first of all, because our hearts are not inherently humble, but also because our eyes are essentially egotistical. We are a self-centered people. There is a reason why the letter I is at the very center of the word sin and of the word pride, because we are a self-focused people in our natural states. We believe we are the center of our own universe and our eyes are firmly fixed upon me, myself, and I. That which suits me, that which seems best to me, I'm the one that's running this show. And yet David here reminds himself he's not the one in control. There is a sweet peace that comes from recognizing that you are not in control. And so when David says, my eyes are not raised too high, he is recognizing that God is the one who sees all things and knows all things and is in control of all things. And therefore, David can rest in him. He can trust that God is in control. Someone, Psalm 119, verse 18, the psalmist prays, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. If we're going to be consumed with wondrous things, may there be wondrous things in the word of God for us. He has displayed his creative power and his redeeming love and his steadfast grace. And yes, also his wrath and judgment. These are all wondrous things that ought to occupy our attention. And yet far too often our eyes are fixed upon other things. Over the last year and a half, we have become occupied with the movement of molecules That might make us sick. Over the last 18 months, we have become preoccupied with election results that may or may not have been done in a poor way. Over the last 18 months, we have become obsessed with things like the economy. And things that are happening in the nations around the world. We've been obsessed with what's gone on recently in the country of Afghanistan. And far too often, while the Bible would not encourage us to be ignorant of these things, far too often we have become preoccupied with things that are too great and too marvelous for us, that are completely and utterly outside of our control. And yet those are things that consume our thoughts and our attentions and cause us to be anxious. Because our eyes are fixed on that which is truly beyond us. And so we pray, Lord, open my eyes. May I be occupied with wondrous things, but the things that are of you. May that be what controls my heart and my eyes. The basic problem for us 
is that our focus is fundamentally flawed. Our attention span is is fundamentally fixed upon that which it should not be fixed upon. The the sinful condition into which we are born and which we have lived out in our lives is, is fundamentally obsessed with things that we should not be obsessed with. Our focus is on the wrong types of things. And so David says here, I have not occupied myself or given my attention to things too great and too marvelous for me. J.A. Alexander, in describing this verse, he said, The great and wonderful things meant here are God's secret purposes, His sovereign means, and His sovereign means for their accomplishment, in which man is not called to cooperate, but to acquiesce or to surrender. Now, this is difficult. Because again, we like to be in control. This is difficult because again, we like to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. But here the Bible is is describing one who is recognizing that his world is outside of his control, but in the very hands of his father God in whom he has placed his trust. Here we see one who is not obsessing over things that are outside of his hands because he knows that all these things are within his father's hands. And therefore he can rest secure. And so we run back to the verse that Matt preached for us a few weeks back. Matthew 6.33, that passage that encourages us multiple times not to be a worried people, it says, but the solution is seek first then the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the things that we're so worried and obsessed over, all these things will be added to you as well. What are we seeking? What are our hearts focused upon? Where are our eyes fixed? There's a pride in our worrying. We would also want to consider this morning that those who would see their anxieties calmed should also consider the price of our weaning. He he gives a, a picture here of a weaned child with his mother. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a, a graphic picture of one who is trusting in God in spite of the difficulty of their circumstances. It's a reminder here that just as there is a a price for the weaning process in the life of a child, I mean, think about the weaning process from the perspective of that child. Up until this point in life, they have gotten all their sustenance from the mother, and now the mother is beginning to wean them from that, to remove that which has been their source of sustenance. And in that process, from the child's perspective, I would dare say this is an extremely disillusioning reality. Because what I have looked to all my days as my source of nourishment and sustenance is now being gradually removed from me. And perhaps the child even begins to think, does, does mom still love me anymore? Why is she doing this to me? I'm hungry, and this is where I have always gone to have my hunger satisfied, and that is being gradually removed. Is my mother's love being removed with my source of nourishment? 
You see, oftentimes we associate the removal of what we view as God's blessings as the removal of his covenant love. We're not talking just about bad things here, but we are talking about how our sinful natures have a tendency to warp good things into sinful things. We can become obsessed again, focused on the wrong things, and that then leads us to a place of sinful action. And so God does this gracious work of weaning in our lives. But again, from the child's perspective, weaning is painful. It's disillusioning. The child does not like it and lashes out and cries out and wants to return to what that he or she has always known. But the mother knows in order for the child to grow and mature, the weaning is necessary. Child of God Your heavenly father knows that in order for you to grow and to mature, there is a weaning process that is necessary in each of our lives. Lest we continue as immature infants in our faith, he first must wean us from our selfishness. There's a self-centeredness in us again. That is constantly seeking that which we believe is best for us. I am at the center of my universe and I seek out those things which I believe will satisfy me. The child going to the mother seeking not that which is best for the mother, but that which is best for the child. And God must wean us from our selfishness, from our self-centeredness for our own good. We forget that so often that this weaning that God does through various means is done for our own good. The the child may think that the mother is out to harm him, but she is not. She wants the very best for him. And she knows it is best for him to be weaned in the same way our Father God knows it is best for us to be weaned from the things of of this world and the things that may seem best to us. He knows what we need. And he will take us even through suffering to accomplish it. James 3.14 encourages us and warns us If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, and by the way, every sinner does. This is the nature of the sinner. We have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. We have a heart condition that God needs to fix. And he says, if you have these things, do not boast and be false to the truth. God is bringing the truth of his word to bear in our lives. And he uses these processes of processes of weaning that are often associated with suffering from our perspective. But from his perspective, he is bringing about great growth and he is bringing us toward maturity through these processes. And it's necessary. He does not waste our suffering He uses it to accomplish his purposes. He must wean us from our selfishness. He must also wean us from our idolatry. We have hearts that are idol-making factories. We will make a false god out of anything and everything. 
We will idolize our money. We will idolize our kids. We will idolize our education, our occupation. We will make idols out of anything and everything. And yet only one is worthy of the worship of our hearts, the one true and living God. And so for our own good, he must wean us away from our idolatries, the false worships that occur in our lives. I think in these days, God is weaning us away from the idolatry of security and regularity and what we would consider normality. How many times have we said we're just looking forward to when things get back to normal? And yet perhaps whatever we thought was normal will never return because perhaps God in his grace is weaning us from that which seemed normal and comfortable and easy and is bringing us into a new phase. Never to return. The child that is weaned is never to return to that old source of nourishment. There is something better to be had. And I believe that's what God is doing for us as he is weaning us from the idols of our day, that he is drawing us in to something better. And so the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That's a dangerous prayer, folks. That's a dangerous prayer because God's ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. He does things differently than we often think they ought to be done. Again, think of that mother and child from the child's perspective. I'm comfortable until the weaning began. This is all going good, mom. Why would you want to change things? But the mother knows something the child doesn't know. And God knows what we need. And out of his goodness and steadfast love toward us, he will accomplish his purposes he must wean us from our selfishness from our idolatry ultimately he is weaning us from our very nature the sin nature in which we were born that god in his grace is weaning us from that sin nature it's that roman 7 struggle that we see with the apostle paul between the flesh and the spirit and he's wrestling over those two things and ultimately comes to the end of that passage and he says who will deliver me from this body of death from this constant warfare from this mess this war between the flesh and the spirit who will deliver me and he launches into praise thank Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He will deliver us. But church, be reminded, part of the delivering process is involved in this weaning us, drawing us away from the things that have captivated our hearts and our sinful condition and fixing our eyes of faith on things of his eternal kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2 reminds us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's actually an important warning here. If this morning as you are hearing the word of God proclaimed, and this sounds like gobbledygook to you, you don't understand it, it doesn't make any sense to you, understand 1 Corinthians 2.14 is reminding us that we require the spirit of God to understand spiritual things. 
We require God's Spirit to open up God's Word to us that we might understand these great truths and receive them by faith. And so if you are having trouble this morning understanding these things, ask God for understanding. Ask Him to give you insight. God loves to honor that prayer. We don't pray it often enough. Ask God to reveal Himself to you. But again, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. As Romans 1 says, we reject the knowledge of God. We don't want to do things God's way. We are that petulant child crying out for that former source of nourishment. All the while screaming and crying. Those of you that have gone through that weaning process with your kids know it is painful. It's painful for the parents too. It's horrible to hear those cries. But knowing what is best for the child, we press on. And God, knowing what is best for us, He presses on even in the midst of our crying and complaining and crying out to Him. He's not oblivious to our cries. He hears every one. And He responds in grace and mercy toward us. So those who would see their anxieties calmed should consider there's a pride in our worrying. There is a price for our weaning. But also, here's the good news, church. There's a prize for our waiting. I love how David ends this psalm. It's been so personal, so intimate. And yet in the last verse, it's as if he turns his attention toward the people that he has been made king over, the people of Israel. And he cries out to them based upon what he's just said. And he says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Put your hope there in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He cries out in that way because he has just experienced the trustworthiness of God, even in the midst of his weaning. He has just experienced the trustworthiness of God, even in the midst of his wanting. He has experienced the trustworthiness of God. And so he wants to put that on display for others and call others to come and to hope in the Lord as he has hoped in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon talking about this psalm, he said, in comparing all the psalms to gems, we should liken this one to a pearl. How beautifully it will adorn the neck of patience. There's that dangerous word. It's been said many times, don't pray for patience. God's path to patience is often one of suffering. Spurgeon said, this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. I think that's so true. It takes a lifetime for us to walk in the things that David is setting before us in these three simple verses. But again, there's a prize for our waiting upon the Lord. Like the eagle that renews its strength, we will run and not grow weary, we will walk and not faint. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And so we wait upon Him. As we wait, we hope in His reliable Word. We hope in His reliable Word. We spent our time in Sunday school this morning talking about what the Word says about the Word. This is a trustworthy Word on which you can place your hope, on which you can place your assurance. God's Word has never failed. He is always completely trustworthy. And He has spoken. Are we listening? Psalm 130. A psalm right before this one. 
It says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope. Not in the resolution of my current trial do I hope. Not in the fixing of my diagnosis do I hope. Not in the reparation of my marriage do I hope. Not in the return of my rebellious child do I hope. Not in the paying of my bills do I hope. My hope is not in those things. My hope is in the Lord and in His Word. And when my hope is there, then it is not circumstantial hope that rises and falls with every tide. But it is steadfast because His Word is unchanging. So we hope in His reliable Word. We hope also in His redeeming love. Again, look back at Psalm 130. We hope in His redeeming love. In Psalm 130, verse 7, the psalmist cries out, O Israel, hope in the Lord. The same thing David has said here. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him there is plentiful redemption. His love never runs out. This steadfast love there is, the Hebrew word is his, his hesed, his covenant love. It's a love that is unchanging based in the very character of our unchanging God. And as we consider his unchanging love, his steadfast love, we're reminded that that love has produced for us plentiful redemption. His love is a redeeming love rescuing us from that which would bring us to destruction and so we hope as we wait we hope in his reliable word we hope in his redeeming love and we hope in his righteous grace oh israel hope in the lord from this time forth and forevermore and the very end of psalm 130 verse 8 he says this he And He will redeem Israel from all of His iniquities. All of our sins, all of our trespasses, redeemed fully and completely by the hand of God Almighty. And so Ephesians 1 says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The fulfillment of Psalm 130 verse 8 is in Ephesians 1 verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And go on and read the rest of that passage and see how He piles on the treasures that we have in Christ. Colossians 1 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. There's that word again. The forgiveness of our sins. He has brought us back to Himself through the blood of His Son poured out at the cross. He has taken us out of the dark kingdom of this world and brought us in to the kingdom of light and life by His sovereign hand alone. And if those things that I just spoke are true, then we truly have no reason for lasting anxiety. Because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Him, the promise of plentiful redemption has been fulfilled. When He said, it is finished, He was saying, all that has made you anxious and worried, all that has caused you to want to hide and remain in a place of ungodly fear, all that has been taken care of, and so you can trust firmly and fully in what He has done for you. This is a done deal. He has delivered us. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ today, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of this world. You've been brought out of that kingdom and brought into a new citizenship. He has already transferred you into his kingdom. That's not just a future reality, folks. We oftentimes think of that as just a future reality. It's a present reality for the child of God. Your citizenship is in heaven. And from there you await the Savior that is coming, His beloved Son. In Him we have, it doesn't say we will have, we have redemption. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back out of the slavery of our sins and brought into His kingdom. As sons and daughters of the King, we have now the forgiveness of our sins. That alone, church, we have the forgiveness of our sins. Take that and set it side by side with whatever you are worried about right now. Whatever is burdening your heart right now, take that one phrase, we have the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And set that right beside that which you are worried about. And if you would see this rightly, you would understand that that scale would be so heavily weighed. This was is burdening you will seem so light and momentary an affliction. Because you'll recognize the weightiness of what it means that we've been forgiven of all of our sins. We need that perspective. Here's what I want to encourage you in today. We're going to end service a little bit differently today. I want to lead us in a time of what I would call some guided meditation. I'm going to use these verses from Colossians 1. Again, these are settled realities for the child of God. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ to do for you what you could never have done for yourself, if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, this is present reality for you. I know our minds are so often consumed with so many other things and we are preoccupied by many lesser things. But this is reality. And so I want us to meditate upon how this reality will change the way that we live in the coming days. Let me share these questions with you and then I'm going to give us a time just to meditate upon these things and to consider what God might have for us as a result. Believer, let me ask you this. What has Christ delivered you from? And I want to encourage you to be specific in your thinking. What has Christ delivered you from and how does that compare with your current trial? 
I know in this room there's some who are dealing with weighty, weighty things. But think back, what has he delivered you from? And how does that compare with what you're currently facing? Second question. This idea of us being transferred into his kingdom. How does your citizenship in the kingdom of God give you the courage to face what is worrying you today? How does your citizenship in God's kingdom give you the courage to face what's worrying you today? Third question relates to our redemption. How does the redeeming love of God give you peace in what you're facing right now? This is not pie-in-the-sky Christianity, folks. This is down to the brass tacks of things. How does this settled reality change your perspective on what you're facing right now? And finally, this issue of forgiveness. Believer, how does the full forgiveness that Christ has fully accomplished for you at His cross change your current perspective? Don't put these things on the back burner. Allow these realities to come to the forefront. I'm going to take the next five minutes and just have a time of quiet meditation. But here's a couple of encouragements. You may need to do this with someone else in the room. For some of you, this may just be a time and it needs to be just you and the Lord considering some of these things in relation to what you're facing in your life right now or what maybe perhaps your loved ones are facing. Whatever it is that's burdening your heart, taking that burden and putting it beside what God's holy word has put in front of you today. That may be a one-on-one you and God moment, but for some of you, You need to walk in what the book of Galatians encourages us. In Galatians chapter 6, it says that we need to bear one another's burdens. And by doing so, fulfill the law of Christ. And so part of your response in this time of meditation may mean you need to get up from where you are and go to another brother or sister in Christ and and bear your let them bear your burdens with you. That means you're going to have to be honest about what's weighing your heart down right now. And then you too can come and bear that to the only one who can really do anything about it. You see, worry leaves us in a place of of feeling helpless. And so we go to our God who is an ever-present help in our times of trouble. And so again, I'm going to lead us through just a time over the next five minutes. Just some meditation upon these questions that I've already laid before you. I'll give you a minute or two with each one. Let's spend time with the Lord and with one another. Let's encourage one another. As David says here, O Israel, O children of God, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. Let's pray together and then we'll start into our time of meditation. Father, help us to consider these things. You know our preoccupations. You know the burdens of our hearts. You know where we have been wrongly focused. And so we're asking you, Father, to fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
fix our eyes on the one who died so we could be delivered. On one who took the cross so we could be transferred into your kingdom. On one who gave up his life so that we could have life and life eternal. On the one who took the full weight of our sins upon himself so that we could be fully and forever forgiven. May these realities occupy our thoughts, change our perspective, and cause us to live differently in these days ahead. Father, would you lead us in this time of meditation, laying our burdens before you and recognizing your sovereignty, your goodness, and your steadfast love. In Jesus' name.